0: This is IT Visionaries, your number one source for actionable insights and exclusive interviews with CIOs, CTOs, and CISOs, and many more. I'm your host, Albert Chow, a former CIO, former sales VP, and now podcast host. Discover Zayo's expansive network maps on their website and see where their network can take you. With low latency, reliable 400 gig and 800 gig enabled routes, it's the modern network solution you've been searching for. Welcome everyone to another episode of IT Visionaries, and today we have a special guest. His name is Jamie Holcomb. The name might sound familiar if you listen to IT Visionaries for a while. He's been on our show before. He's the CIO at a little organization we call the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. Kind of a big deal. They assess technology with technology now. Jamie, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks a lot for having
1: me. I'm really looking forward to speaking about all the great progress and results we've attained at the United States Patent and Trademark Office.
0: Listen, we're pumped to have you. Before we begin, though, just in case anyone out there, maybe you're a youngin', maybe you're someone who's new uh, in the workforce, you might not be as familiar with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. I believe everyone is. But just in case, could you please tell us what is the primary role of the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, and specifically, what do you do there?
1: Sure, thanks a lot. Hey, according to the U.S. Constitution, That's right. Our mission is defined in the U.S. Constitution to give inventors the right to their intellectual property. So what we do is we award patents and we register trademarks. And it's a really great mission and a great duty because we see all the greatest innovations to spur our economy on to better progress. I mean, it's just fascinating the things that we do every day. We have about 8,000 patent examiners and we have about 800 trademark examiners and each has their own unique role in accepting applications and ensuring that things are unique and novel such that nobody else can use your intellectual property. So it's a fascinating thing that we do that's very unique to the government.
0: Yeah. So for anyone listening out there, these are Jamie and his squad, or team members, <laughs> co-workers, however you want to talk about them, they have to take any submission and validate whether or not this is actually a new idea. Does it already exist? Is this too common? Uh did someone else file something that's too similar? Uh and in your role here is is to identify what is truly new, truly unique and grant patents based on the fact that it is unique and truly new. G- give us an idea of how this used to be done. Uh, because I think our conversation has to start there because digital assistance has really only been around for a short period of time. You mentioned the examiners. At one point, I'm sure they were looking up like microfiche. I have no idea. Like in, in, in all the records of different patents inventions and so on. Give us an idea of what this process used to look like and give us a process, uh, give us an idea of what it looks like today. So, Jamie, take me from the top. I submit a patent back in the day. How did you guys start the examination process?
1: Yeah, it's even worse than you think. So, think about (laughs) it, though.
0: We've been around
1: for over 200 years. So, because of that, we accepted, obviously, things on paper. And it's really interesting to think about the history of the patent office because it actually burned down in the early 1800s. And so we lost all the treasure trove of papers that were sent to us to verify that these people had patents. Well, we've gotten a lot better than that, but only 30 years ago did we actually take the paper submissions and make sure they were digitized. So now we take both formal submissions on paper as well as electronic submissions over the internet. So we really have changed. But 30 years ago is when we digitized all that. So before that, think about this, 1996, the examiners actually walked into what they called shoeboxes. Now, what is that? It's the size of a shoebox. But if you ever went to the library in the olden days, and you looked at the index cards, that's what the shoeboxes were. They were filled with large index cards and paper that actually showed the different inventions according to a manual process of filing. And that is, (laughs) it's amazing to think about that those examiners had to look through all that paperwork. Now, it's interesting, too, because human interaction is really unique in that regard. If you're all sitting around the same shoeboxes, right, they're all piled up and you get together, well... You start socializing. And so what they used to call art units, they still have them, but the social group would get together and they were able to share stories about, oh, I've seen that before. That's not unique. I've done that one last week. And so there was a lot of social interaction. But now we've lost that group think because we are all remote and it's all digitized. So it has a lot to do more with the individual examiner and how they're able to find the prior art to see if it's unique and novel, or if it's already been done. So that's all based on searching and mechanisms in the digital search across the internet. So it has changed a lot since the days of yore.
0: (laughs) Give us an idea of what it looks like now, because the, the one thing that I always think is interesting, And this is my perspective. I'm I'm sure other people think just like me, which is, hey, if I'm the, let's just assume I'm smart, right? I'm the smart person. I'm the one that's come up with the idea. It's never been done before. So how is a person on the other side who, I'm not saying they're not smart, but they don't have the same experience or information I have. How do they validate what I'm submitting and how does the technology today help the examiners validate that this, uh, what I'm submitting is is new.
1: Well, let's take the example of a brand new area, and that's artificial intelligence. Obviously, machine learning and data science have been around, but they haven't been of note. They haven't really made it to the forefront of technology and science. They're now one of the hottest areas of technology. So do we have the representative people that can actually delve into that. And that was your question. How can these people who are right up on the edge of science be evaluated by people who might not have that background? Well, we have tried to train our folks as best as possible and give them the search tools that are needed to ensure the first thing that they would do is look at prior art. And that is all of the nine- petabytes of online addressable information in the patent database. Not only do they search the database, but they also have to search the current applications in their art unit because some people think of the same thing at the same time and have submitted (laughs) it. In fact, there's a lot of biopharmaceuticals that are submitting their applications, yet their tests aren't complete. So what they do is that R&D departments actually have a race to finish on the results. And whoever gets Mm. there first and submits it to the patent office actually gets their patent. And the other guys don't. So it's a race to the finish to get the results and so forth. And it's an amazing way. We have to be really careful about the time stamp and date of when we accept these applications because there's a new law, 10 years old or so, that right now it's whoever submits first. And so we mm. have to not only timestamp it, but then we have to follow it. And the examiner actually makes sure that he talks to the applicant on and gets these things decided or make sure it's clear and clarified what they're claiming. So it's a really interesting thing, not only that, but we also have to search international databases to ensure that there's no one outside that have already submitted these things, but it might not be awarded yet. So there's a lot of intense complexity in
0: the entire process. Give us an idea of how modern technology is helping this process, because I can see, because for for example, one of the things that patents always require is like a, typically a a schematic or drawing, a drawing that kind of illustrates like what it is, how's it gonna work, what the figure is. So I'm assuming now, You can use AI to scan these images and then go back through the archives and be like, do you see something like this that's been previously submitted? Because as you mentioned, submissions, and I think that's important for everyone to recognize, not only can it not be patented, they check the previous submissions too, because there could possibly be like a rejection and a reason why it's been rejected that's already been documented. So they're going to want to cite that. So it's not just the actual patents they're searching. They're searching every every (laughs) submission that was in history and currently being submitted. That's 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 what it's doing. That's
1: exactly right, Albert. And that's a hard
0: concept, right?
1: But the new technologies that we introduced about two and a half, three years ago include the ability for AI to classify the actual patents in accordance with their art unit, or you can call it a category. And we've gotten much mm-hmm. better at that so that we don't have to spend all that quality time figuring out what it should be. We get the right patent to the right examiner at the right time. And that's a great use of machine learning because we've actually taught it how to be more precise and get it to the right examiner. So that's one example. The other one is AI searching. Not only do we have patent search, which is a lot more than a large language model and or just the ability to search based on words, but we've actually created the ability for AI to use context searching. So one of our greatest accomplishments, I believe, is our use of the Kaggle competition, K-A-G-G-L-E.com, hosted by Google, where we put a code challenge out to the entire world. And mostly we directed it at the academic community and the research and development community. And in this code challenge, the first prize was twelve thousand five hundred, second prize was $7,500, and third prize was $5,000 for a total of $25,000 spent on this context phrase-to-phrase matching for patent search. And what does that mean? We created the or the competition, created the algorithms that are necessary to compare words in one industry with the phraseology and the context of the different words in another industry such that they they have they might have the same meaning and so they were mm-hmm. valuably the same thing that's a very hard thing to do and a lot of large language models do that but we were able to put that out in that code competition and all of that work is now open source community so all the academics and the research and development folks can use it. And we're using it in some of our context searching within the AI and ML part. So that's another way that new technology can be used by the examiners to help the quality and the speed at which we award or reject patents.
0: The other thing that I'm guessing is you're going to stay busy. And one of the things that I remember, I remember this talk from uh, Toby Luke, who is the CEO of Shopify, and he talked about how his company actually took off during the la- during the 2008 recession because people were out of work and more and more people were starting to start their own businesses. And I can see that happening again. There's probably a lot of people, if the market swings back a little bit, starting businesses, having ideas, sending you paperwork your way, And which brings me to this, my next question, which you mentioned how important it is to have your record or submission, excuse me, time and date stamped. And it's got to be super accurate because if two competing patents are submitted at the same time, literally you're talking about seconds is the difference between saying you are the person that can commercialize. You are not the person who commercialize, which is probably crazy to think about. What does it mean for you to have a network infrastructure open enough so that you aren't the blockage because I know I'm I'm imagining like all these pharma companies in during COVID were like, no, you didn't accept it. Like this is a network problem that I submitted early enough or whatever their reasoning would be. I'm sure there's, you know, some, some arguments there. Give me an idea of what it means for you to set up an infrastructure so that it can handle all these submissions that are happening, get those, those results time date stamped accordingly. And also, you know, basically eliminate network excuses as the reason for not being awarded a patent, which I can't I can't imagine could get, get down to that, but it sounds like it's possible if someone's one second ahead of me, that's it.
1: That's right. When you think about network and submissions, you have to think about bandwidth and the ability to process, right? And so there's always two parts to that internet link. There's the part where the person gets on the backbone, and goes across the hops within the internet. And then there's the part that on the internet, he can get to the USPTO. Well, I'm really happy to report that before COVID happened, we increased (laughs) our bandwidth four times to what it was before. And we're only using less than half of it on a consistent basis. Now, why is that good? Because if we experience a two times applications, we can actually take care of it in our primary circuit out to the internet. Also, it provides us the ability to have a backup routine and we can double the throughput trying to back up and continue our operations elsewhere. So resiliency is the biggest thing in ensuring that an application goes down, it can come back up almost without notice. And I say that because what we're trying to get to on all systems is the ability to have hot, hot operations that are load balanced across the network. Meaning you'll never know if a site goes down because the other site will pick it up right away. That's just what people expect in the new internet age. Having these old client server applications from four years ago is not acceptable. We have modernized and put about 60% of our apps out in the cloud. And for those that are older, we're retiring all the mainframe applications. And we're getting rid of all that hardware. Now, as you can well imagine, that's a hard thing to do over a number of years. But at the four and a half year mark, we're almost there in getting rid of every single mainframe app we have. We're right at the finish line. And I don't want to stop. I want to keep pushing it across that goal line.
0: Dude, that's awesome. Hey, listen, at least you've at least you recognized, clearly recognized the, the the bottleneck and are solving it. Uh, we've talked to other CIOs and CTOs and talking about legacy mainframe applications. And, uh, you know, they talk about, hey, when the dollars and cents make sense, it'll get moved. But until it does, it doesn't. And I was thinking to myself, like, yeah, man, it's pretty cool. The government a- entity is doing it because it really does, because like, I think the US Patent Office probably has more impact on business than all the other government entities. It's pretty crazy to think about it, because you know, like you said, two people with the same idea in a race to innovate. The difference between winning and not be or getting awarded and not being awarded you're talking about possibly a market. Like, you know what I mean? That's, it's so big. So yeah, it makes sense that you guys would want to upgrade your services as good as possible so that the innovators can keep innovating.
1: Amen. That's for sure.
0: (laughs) For yourself. The other thing that you have to do then is you have to secure all the information as well, because you mentioned before, like, listen, if I am working, because, because the patent process has, like you just mentioned appeals. I can, of course, uh, defend uh, uh, or challenge any decision that's made by the office. And I know for a fact, information lies in other submissions that could probably help an inventor. Like, you know what I mean? You got inventor A, inventor B racing to the finish line. B has identified something that A has not figured out. Well, if A knew B, maybe A has the more complete submission in his gets gets awarded. How do you go about protecting all this information? Because it's so much of it's in flux, right? Like a lot of times when someone's patenting something, there's no existence of it in the market. So all the information that's critical possibly is in my application. You can't let my application out the door either, Jamie, because I'm, I'm done. I'm finished. If you let some people know my trade secret, I might be done. What lengths do you, you guys go to to protect the information? Visit Zayo's website today to unlock the power of your network and tap into the technologies of tomorrow. Go to zayo.com network now.
1: Yeah, we go through extensive, extensive lengths. So my number one priority is cybersecurity. As you've just stated, we are a target for many, many hackers. Therefore, we definitely have our guard up and we're vigilant. And we've incorporated a 24 by 7 year-round cyber monitoring service for our applications. We never go to sleep. We have three shifts, eight hours a day, and we have over 20 people on shift that look at these to ensure that our cyber defenses are up. And if any zero-day attacks come, we can respond accordingly. So not only do I say cyber is number one, but it requires a little understanding of the actual intellectual property. You just said something that keyed in on me, trade secrets. Actually, that's the fourth type of intellectual property there is. Of course, there's patents and trademarks, but the third type is copyrights. And the copyright office is not even in the executive branch. It's over in the legislative branch under the Library of Congress but we work very closely with them and ensure that we do things in concert for intellectual property. Now, you mentioned trade secrets. A trade secret is another form of intellectual property where the company decides, like Coca-Cola, to keep their formula secret from everybody else. They don't have to patent it. They just keep it secret. So in that case, a trade secret has certain legal items that you need to do in order to protect it to say that it's a trade secret. Many things happen with non-disclosure agreements and confidentiality agreements where trade secrets can't be uh, exchanged. But that's a form of intellectual property that we don't necessarily deal with at the patent office. But what we do deal with is something that's really weird. In my cybersecurity, I'm almost like a Jekyll and Hyde. I'm almost like black and white. And I say that because for the most part, anything that's given to us will become or most people want it to become public. So we have a huge database that can be searched to ensure that you're not submitting something that somebody else has already thought about. So that's the public information. So when you submit it to us, as I said, before it was awarded or rejected, that's when we need to keep it really secret. Nobody else can know. And that's where right. we have all of our tight security controls in there. And we call those the claims of the patent. Once it's awarded, however, it needs to be revealed in public. So it goes from black to white, out in the open. Everybody knows. The only thing that we have to keep forever almost is those rejected claims. Those claims that you were talking about, right? Right. That didn't get awarded, but it still might be a unique idea. So we still have to keep that secret and black so that no one else knows about it. So it's very interesting, all the different categories and types of information that we're dealing with and how we actually let it become public.
0: When you're thinking about that security measure, right? How do you invest in cybersecurity? Because you mentioned the -the around-the-clock teams, Uh, and so on? Are you constantly evaluating new vendors? Like, How do you go about thinking about protecting this information?
1: Yeah, that's a great question, because there's three categories that I think about when I think about cybersecurity. The first category is what everybody thinks of, and that is the cyber operations, which I just talked about, the ability to prevent known hacks from coming in and defend in depth. There's a new characterization out there, a new way to think about security called zero trust. And we are implementing different zero trust applications in order to create both a defense in depth, as well as a new zero trust environment where we verify and validate all of our different sessions. Now, that's 24 by 7 all year round. And that's a constant vigilance package. That's the first, cyber operations. But your second category, which is really thought, you really need to think about it for your enterprise, and that is your cyber hygiene. In other words, how do your Mm. employees and your users actually use the different applications that they work with every day? Spear phishing and other types of phishing and ransomware and those things are all based on how savvy the user is in training and understanding that people want to steal your stuff and you have an obligation to prevent that from happening. Anybody can press a uh, errant link and get malware, but we have those things set up such that we all not only do exercises, which constructively tell people, hey, you got phished, you, you need some retraining, and then we we try to create a constructive and positive atmosphere where we're gamifying it and making people really want to be more cyber secure and not slapping them on the wrist and putting them down and trying to shame them that they're, oh, you're a terrible person. This is terrible. So we try to create a <laughs> constructive way because our examiners are lawyers and engineers. They're very smart people and they have a lot of things to do. So we're trying not to burden them, but at the same time, we're trying to create uh, an understanding of good cyber hygiene. Just like you brush your teeth daily, you need to make sure your cyber routine is daily and you need to sign off for your computer and make sure there are good passwords that are strong and multi-factor authentication. And the third category that we could talk about with cyber is the insider threat. An insider threat means, it's not that you don't trust your individual's, But it actually means that you train people to ensure that there's no insider threat. It could be as simple as a janitor backing up into and unplugging your computer on your rack. And it could be as onerous as someone who's intentionally trying to steal things from you and get in. Of course, you know, insider threat has a lot to do with people holding for ransom and people extorting data and taking it with you everywhere you go. So we also have an insider threat program that's just as essential. So again, the three areas are cyber operations, cyber hygiene, and then insider threat.
0: I respect that. And and I was reading, doing some reading about how most of the technology of Inside of cybersecurity has gotten so good that the net, the idea of an external hacker breaking through a network is not nearly as a problem as people would think. The actual problem is what you just described—that that insider threat, possibly, or some type of uh, compromise where I can convince somebody through, uh, like you said, like through phishing or just maybe verbally, I convince someone to give me information they otherwise would not want to give me that I can then leverage and become and take over, like a like a computer. And act as the person. The insider threat thing is pretty interesting because we see more, uh, let's say, mixed living arrangements now where there's more people working from home. And it's all it takes is, and this isn't nefarious, but like it's possible because I work, I've seen those like co working offices. Like, I mean, you're working with tons of people from different companies and there's guests all over the place. And I don't know who these people are. So, yeah, easy, very easily, if you're leaving your laptop open, it's a problem. <laughs>
1: Very much so. And I'd love to give this one. You don't even have to have people around. What about your dog who jumps up on your desk and hits the wrong keys because he's going after your lunch?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Patent approved. How'd that happen? Oh, yeah, the dog touched the button. (laughs) It's pretty crazy. (laughs) For yourself, one of the things that I always think is interesting about, again, because the US Patent and Trademark Office is evaluating new submissions that do not exist. And so your examiners and your team and your staff have to be thinking, I think so critically, because a lot of subjects probably are outside of their purvey of knowledge, meaning someone's submitting something so new and so novel, you might not really have any domain experience about it. So you have to go, like you said, and find associated things and like, was this possible or has this been submitted and so on. How do you go about recruiting the individuals that can do this job? Because it is such a, I, I, I feel like it's a big thinking job, uh, but in, it's also in service. So, of course, we know that private market technology uh, jobs are, it's very competitive. The, the, ask, the uh, wages are super high. How do you go about recruiting the right people with this mindset to work at the USPTO? Because it's really a dynamic environment. You've got to constantly be thinking about things that are possible, even if you don't really know what the guy or the person is saying. <laughs> That's the way I frame exactly. it. Exactly. So, we have three areas of recruiting. It's
1: separated into entry level, mid level, and then senior level. And of course, the entry level is directed at academics, you know, people who are coming out with this new technology. And we're trying to bring them in as lawyers or engineers as the first step in a career at the PTO. What I think is really crazy is. The average tenure of folks here is 22 years, and we have over 13,500 employees who are federal workers. Normally, at 20 years, you you retire. When I said the average tenure, people are retiring here at 35 and 40 years of service. So it's a great place to work, and there's a lot of challenges. That's why people like it. It challenges their intellect. And they have the ability to earn a good living that's pretty stable and secure. Now, of course, if you're looking for a startup and the challenge of, you know, high stakes Silicon Valley, probably not the place you're going to come to is the government. But we do have that mid-level or senior level recruiting where we found that people coming out of the military, people serving at other government locations, they love to come to the PTO because of the challenge and the security. So we first appeal to people's patriotism and the mission of technology uh, challenge, and then third, it's a great place. It's stable and secure. It's a good place to work. It's one of the best places to work I've ever been, and uh, it, it's fantastic. How do we actually appeal to them? That's a personal decision, and that's why you know we have over eight thousand examiners, and it's all personal, right? It's all why do they come. They're spread out all across America, and most of our work is fully remote. And so that's another appealing thing. People can work in Peoria or San Francisco, Waterloo or wherever. As long as it's within the confines of the United States, we're good to go.
0: Well, listen, that's pretty awesome because I just keep thinking about what is necessary now to be a good examiner. It just keeps – the stakes just keep rising. The amount of innovation that's happening – more more it's more and more rapid pace at all the time. So you're gonna have to keep you're gonna have to keep upgrading, Jamie. You're gonna have to keep doing what you're doing. You're gonna have to keep upgrading legacy systems, you're gonna have to keep implementing new technologies that help you search, identify, recognize information faster. I look forward to the day. When this becomes a flawless process where it's like, you know, just a couple months, you know exactly what's going on. Who knows? But Could you get it done to a day? I don't know. Cause is there a future where the U S patent and trademark office could give a decision within a day? That'd be insane amount of research in one day. I don't know. That should be your goal.
1: <laughs> you know, I love that goal because I think rejections can happen a lot quicker than awards. And why do I say that? Because if something matches, it, you should give it enough thought to have quality in it, but you should have a quick way to say, look, this should be rejected because of these 50 items. And then with wow. the preponderance of evidence, it's going to be hard to appeal. So rejection should occur really quickly. Now, awards is another thing. So it might take a little wa- longer, and you always worry about the quality of that, because if you're just giving a short shrift on a week, it's like you really haven't thought about it. That's not fair. So there's a lot of different back and forth about what's good quality and what's quick service.
0: I appreciate that. Jamie, it was awesome having you back on IT Visionary, sharing some of the things that are happening at the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. If you thought this episode was interesting and you've been curiously fascinated, go check out their website. We'll link it in the show notes below. Sounds like, Jamie, you are always hiring people. The knowledge, the scope of knowledge necessary or that the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office could benefit from just keeps increasing. Like the amount of things that people need to know in order to issue and examine these patents is just it's mind boggling. Jamie, I want to say thanks again for joining us today on IT Visionaries.
1: Albert, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure to speak with you.